Um, for fun, how many people have read Sue Grafton's books? She's in the audience. Sue, where are you? Can you stand up? Yay! Um, how many people read Peanuts every day? He's in the audience. Charles Schultz. Will you stand up? How many people read Dutch Leonard? Elmore Leonard. Is he in the audience? Where is he? Elmore, stand up. Where is he? You'll hear him tomorrow night, and it's going to be great. Can we come in and then close that door because the outside no noise kind of filters in? I just have one announcement to make, and that is that the Bill Downey scholarship is going so great, you can't believe it, thanks to the generosity of Charles Schultz, who has donated these panels. Uh, I hate to put monetary things, uh, prices on things, but um, if first of all, you couldn't find one, but if you could find one, imagine how much it would cost. Uh, so for a paltry buck and a couple of bucks, you can buy a couple of chances to win one, because we've got uh, three to go, and tomorrow night... We will draw for the one that's up there. So right after our speaker has concluded tonight, they will still be selling drawings for tomorrow night's drawing. Our speaker tonight, Anne Lamott, needs no introduction, so we won't give her one. <laughs> Anne Lamott. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, are there any questions? <laughs> no? Okay. I'm going to try and save a little time at the end for questions, if I remember to. And um, I'm going to try and tell you every single thing I can think of that will help you with your writing, besides prayer. Um, I want to begin by telling you that I, I know that a lot of you are, are um, have been writing... Uh, very intensely for a very long time and that one of the things that keeps you going is the carrot of publication and that a lot of you are, are hoping to get published and, uh, and, I, and that's fine to want to get published and it's fine to write towards publication but I think it's also important excuse me one moment please I have to go I'll be back I just want to tell you that um, the publica publication will not make you well. It will really not help in any appreciable way at all. Um, it will publication. A lot of people think that when when they when their first book becomes published, that their self-esteem will arrive soon after <laughs> by phone, fax, or mail, and this is not true. What will happen after publication is that you will become even more mentally ill than you are right now. And that is the truth. I can promise you that. You will long to be at this level of mental illness again. You know, and after a great deal of therapy and chiropractic help, you will be able to return to where you were in late June of 1996. And that is the truth. Uh, the, pu the publication is a myth. The fact that publication will help you, heal you, give that, that the world will suddenly validate your parking ticket, it's a lie. It's a, it's a hologram. It's the eagle on the credit card. It's very flashy, but it only appears to fly. <laughs> but writing, it's sort of like people that think that... Um, that if they have a child, they will become well and whole and, uh, and their self-esteem will arrive, ha-ha. And that you think that, having a ch that a child will be like having a cat and that you and, and the new kitty will stare at each other tenderly for many hours and, and you will feel that now you know who you are. And this is not true. Um, but writing can give you the same things that, that having a child can if you are so inclined, we'll talk later, but um, 
what it can give you, uh, which having a child can, is it can give you the, it can teach you how to pay attention. You can do three things. It can teach you how to pay attention. It can open your heart, which usually feels like terrible. And uh, there's another thing it can give you. Um, I know the discipline, this has nothing to do with having a child, but the discipline of getting your work done every day can give you the freedom that I know you're longing for. And I know a lot of you think that if you got published, first the self-esteem would arrive and then the freedom. And it's not true. Publication has nothing to offer. I was five books into, pub into pu being a published writer when I started making a real living at it. And, uh, and the self-esteem did not ever come from out there. It did not come from sitting dog-like by the phone waiting for my editor or my agent or the New York Times to call. Don't even get me started on the New York Times. <laughs> the New York Times is like if you took the very worst boyfriend in my police lineup of boyfriends, I like that boyfriend better than I like the New York Times. The New York Times is beneath contempt and they will completely mess with your soul on every level. The New York Times laughs at your problems. Its only amusement is how screwed up you are. And, um, but if you're a writer, you think that sitting there waiting, for, and when the New York Times calls, you will suddenly be well, and it will mean you have arrived, and your freedom will be coming along soon, probably next week, right after lunch. And, um, and it won't. It's not true. Publication is something you bounce back from. Publication is something you go through, and after about six, about six weeks later, you can uh, start to breathe again comfortably. And you can remember who you are and why you're here and, um, and why you're glad you didn't kill yourself that time. <laughs> and when you're in the middle of publication, you're not going to be able to remember. And you should. I'll give you some numbers to call. <laughs> publication is something you get over and that you recover from. And I know a lot of writers, I'm not going to name names, some are here tonight, some have southern accents, not going to name names. Um, I know, but I, I, a lot of my friends are writers, and um, three of them are out on tour right now, and, um, and one of them is suicidally depressed and in fear of losing his house, and he has sold 200,000 copies of the book that he's promoting right now, and it's the world is so crazy that if you sell 200,000 copies of a book, but you did better another time, you will have always done better another time. This is what the truth is. Even though you, the, the time that you did better than, the time that was the one that hold up as the time you really, really did well, was still a disappointment, fiercely disappointing. And, um, but that one will be held up as having been the high water mark, even though everybody felt secretly crushed and devastated that it didn't go even better than it did. And that will be held up as what they had hoped for with the new book. And there is no winning. You are not going to win if you play by those rules. And if you play with that being the carrot that motivates you to write, you are doomed. I mean that in the nice way. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, I'll tell you one funny story, and then I will tell you about my personal problems. Um, Here's the story. This is where fame will get you. This is how fabulous it is to become famous because I am semi-famous now and I do own a Jeep, okay? <laughs> I have airbags, right? Um, I, I went, let's see, Bird by Bird did very well and I became so mentally ill I was channeling, you know, squeaky from for about six weeks. I was hardly able to dress myself. And things start, and I got very pumped up on how fabulous it was to be famous and have airbags. And, um, and I, got a, I got a letter one day from, I got a lot of mail. I got one letter from a woman whose name I no longer remember. I wonder if I wrote it down. From um, Great Neck, New York. Say her name is Mrs. Brown. Is she here? There's a person who wrote to me from Great Neck here. I don't want to hurt any feelings. Okay, she, she wrote me a letter and she'd written a memoir. And she'd spent five years writing a memoir, and she had a really interesting life. And she wrote me a long letter about it, which was not an interesting letter. But I was glad that she wrote to me, and I put it aside. And all of a sudden, one day, I decided that, in, that because I was so um, 
mentally ill and contaminated by having been out there dancing as fast as I could trying to sell yet another book, I would call Mrs. Brown in Great Neck, New York and be a loving, giving person like the Christian I purport to be. So I called, my son was sleeping and I called Great Neck Information and in the letter she said I was her favorite writer, right? And I'm such a sucker. I'm, I'm like dog-like in the face of this news that I'm her favorite writer. So I call Great Nick Information. I get the number for Mrs. Brown. I call Mrs. Brown. Hello, Mrs. Brown, I begin. This is Anne Lamott in California. Oh, she says, hello. I say, how are you? She says, I'm fine. I say, listen, I want to thank you for writing to me. And the thing is that I've read your letter and I... I know that you want the name of my agent secretly, although you're too nice to say that, but I don't think that you're ready to submit yet. I think what you need to do is to find someone who will read your work for you and to help you with it and to get it in shape to submit to an agent because you don't want to burn bridges. You want to really have it ready before you send it out there. She says, oh, what do you think I should do? I said, well, find someone you know, advertise, put a personals or answer an ad or put something up where you swim or, or whatever and find someone who's writing who's a pretty good writer who will read your stuff and critique it for you and mark it up for you and do the same. Oh, okay, so we talk for about 10 minutes. Then I'm tired of being benevolent. I'm exhausted. And, uh, and so I lie, you know. And I say, oh, I think I hear my son waking up now. I need to go. And she says, well, it was so great of you to call. And I say, well, it was nice talking to you. And there's this tiny pause and she says, now, what did you say your name was? <laughs> okay. So that's six books and two airbags later. Okay, one thing I know is that good writing is about telling the truth. It's about understanding who we are. And when you are writing and when you are trying to tell the truth and you're trying to do it as well as you can one day at a time, you're going to feel like you're living up to something. And every day that you get your work done, you're going to have a guilt-free afternoon. It's that simple. If you don't get your work done, you're going to go around, you're going to feel, uh, I feel so depressed. And if you get your work done, you go around all day and you feel great. All afternoon, people call and say, oh, I feel great, got my work done. You know, it's that simple. It's like, how do you want to feel? You want to feel like, uh, I feel like, oh, I got my work done, it's great. I'm happy, I'm fine, I'm cool. So get your work done, one day at a time. The thing is that um, there are problems. Okay, I understand that. That's why you're here, right? Um, it's hard to get your work done on certain days because, um, first of all, that you may have the self-esteem of a cattle tick, for instance. You may have equal proportions of severely low self-esteem and this grandiosity. And it's very confusing to try to write a simple sentence when you're caught in the middle of the grandiosity and the self-loathing. So... We call this radio station KFKD, and I'm not going to tell you what it sounds for. It has a profanity in it, and I'm not going to say it. But if KFKD is playing, it's like 24 hours a day of punk music. It's like the punk metal, heavy metal station playing when you're trying to describe what Inverness looks like at dawn, you know? And, and your mind is spinning, and it's a snake pit, you know, and, and, and you're, you're totally spiraling into this weird LSD flashback while at the same time you're trying to practice your speech for the Academy Award for your first screenplay, you know, and it's hard to write. So I do this every day. And then one of the and out of the right-hand speaker of KFKD is this endless stream of self-loathing. And of like, you know, your parents are right, your, uh, you know, the well is run dry, you're a dilettante, uh, you should have stayed in school, you should have gone to school, you should have learned a job, you could be working for the phone company right now, but no, look at you, you're trying to write. And out of the left-hand speaker comes this endless stream of self-aggrandizement that you're more sensitive, you're more observant, you're more soft-hearted, you're more realistic, you're more poetic and lyrical and humble <laughs> and um, and one of the voices is going to tell you that you have nothing really to write about because you haven't suffered or something but Flannery O'Connor said that anyone who has survived childhood has enough to write about for the rest of their life I believe that to be true I believe my son right now if he could write which he can't and probably never will could probably fill a book 
with stuff that he's noticed, stuff that he knows, stuff that he's seen, stuff he's thought about, his dreams, his fantasies, his loss, what he survived. He's six and a half, you know? And, um, and that's the truth. If you're surviving, you've got a story to tell. But um, it's so big, and especially if you're older than six and a half, which many of you appear to be, um, not by much, but um, it's very scary because it's so big and it's so huge and it matters to you so much. Most of you probably, like me and like my writer friends, love reading with the same kind of passion that we love Yosemite, you know, or that we love being at the ocean. We love it beyond our ability to capture our love of it, but we love to read. We love to, uh, we find solace and we find direction. We find illumination in reading and we want to be a part of that. But it's so big. So here are the two most important concepts I can convey. One is the concept of really, really short assignments. A lot of times when my students come to, to my workshops, they arrive and what they want to do is they're going to write a novel about the history of women. <laughs> or they're in the middle of a screenplay about the immigrant experience in America. <laughs> and they're overwhelmed. And they're sitting there in radio station KFKD is playing. And... Um, uh, the title, Bird by Bird, actually, is, is one of the two best pieces of advice I ever heard, which was from my father. My brother, John, who's two years older than I am, had a report on birds in fourth grade, and it was December. It had been assigned in September, and this was classic Lamont study skills. He hadn't started it. It was due the next day. And um, he had all these books, paper, pencils. He had everything he needed. He hadn't written one word. And my dad sat down with him, and he said, just take it bird by bird. And I thought that was really great advice. The other best advice I ever heard was E.L. Doctorow, who's a wonderful novelist who everybody ought to read if you haven't already, who said that writing is like driving at night with the headlights on, and you can only see two or three feet in front of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. And it's such a radical concept for people who, like me, are a little bit anxious and like to know where they're going and what they will see along the way and what it will be like and if, in fact, the plane seems to be going too fast <laughs> and if there's any chance at all of arriving. And, um, and what you do is you just think, you know, two or three feet in front of you, it's all you can see, and you describe it as well as you can. Um, the other um, concept I know, and I do have to say a, a swear word, which um, I apologize for, uh, the other best concept I know um, is that of shitty first drafts. And that if you haven't written a lot or if you are um, holding yourself up to others and comparing yourself to others, you're going to probably think that these other writers who are doing better than you, which is, let's face it, almost everyone, <laughs> writes beautifully and that they sit down to write and it comes out in fully formed sentences and just shimmers with insight and clarity. Uh, without an extra word anywhere. And I don't know anyone who writes good first drafts. I frankly don't think it speaks of a rich inner life to write <laughs> good first drafts. And I don't. And all the people I know that are interesting and odd and have something to say write unbelievably shitty first drafts. And it's really scary. Um, I used to write... Uh, food reviews for California Magazine before it folded, which had nothing to do with my food reviews. Although the fact is that people always cancel their subscriptions because of my food reviews, which were highly political in nature and rarely mentioned food. Um, but not so many people canceled as a result of my food reviews that the magazine went under, went under for other reasons. But um, I always had a month to write these food reviews, and the week before I'd always take a few friends to a restaurant, the one that had been assigned. And I would always take the funniest people I could think of um, so that I could steal all their lines, right? So they would say really interesting, funny, insightful stuff, and then I could use it, which is another point that we'll talk about later, which is that you should probably upgrade your friends right now <laughs> and hang out with smarter and funnier people <laughs> because then you can use their lines unless they're writers also, in which case you shouldn't be with them because they may be stealing your lines. Um, so I take these people out to a restaurant. I write down all the incredible, funny, incredibly funny things my friends had said, and uh, and then I steal a menu, and then I go home. And I always started on the lap the Monday before it was due. It was due. All, I'd always send it in on a Tuesday, and on a Monday I would sit down to write it. And I'd write like it, was, it could be three pages. It could be 900 words, and I'd write like nine pages. I write a nine-page first draft, and I would mention food on page seven. 
you know. And I'd get completely distracted by, by how angry I was at whoever was president at the time and, and how much I hated their wife, you know. And, and, I, and I cast aspersions all over the character of their children, you know. And I would do this for like six or seven pages. And then set page seven or eight, I would mention the restaurant and the ambiance and the food and what style of eating it had been. Then I'd get back into comparing parts of the president's anatomy to things I'd eaten that night that I'd found unpleasant. And, uh, and then I'd sort of tie it all together. And then I'd spend the rest of the day obsessing that I was going to get killed and that um, people were going to think it was a suicide because they'd find this first draft and they'd go, oh, her mind was shot. She had lost her mind. And, um, and then, I, you know, that people would think that the car that had crushed me on the sidewalk, that I had thrown myself in front of it to avoid the pain of having completely decompensated. And, um, and on, the sec- on then the second morning, I'd get up and I'd go through and I'd take out every single thing I could think of that could go, which would be the first seven pages. It would be the diatribe about the president's wife. And then I would find a section that might mention the restaurant kind of accidentally, and I would circle it or put an arrow or an exclamation mark in the margin, and then I would try to start there. And I would take out everything I could, and then I would write a really awful second first draft, but it would only be like five pages at this point. It would actually mention the restaurant and food. And then I would rewrite it really fast, and it would always come together. And it didn't matter how many times I did this. I did this for like four years. When I wrote these nine-page diatribes, I never thought, oh, I'm sure it'll all come together in the morning. I never thought that once. It never crossed my mind because I had radio station KFKD on. And so I was either thinking that I was, was going to get fired and the magazine was going to go under or that I would picture myself on, on the Johnny Carson show, you know, talking about my restaurant reviews and how insightful they were and how strange that I could be so political while discussing purees. And... Um, and I did this for years, and this is how I write still. I write the worst for, for, uh, first drafts of anyone you've ever known. And I know that almost all the writers who you really love write awful first drafts. And um, the only person I ever heard of who didn't was Muriel Spark. And she said, oh, I think this is so angry. She said that she felt so plugged in. She was so religious, and she felt so plugged in that she felt like she was taking dictation from God. And she just typed up her Right? But I think that kind of talk is like an act of aggression against me personally. <laughs> um, not that I met her. But um, most of the people I know that are good writers who are writing stuff I want to read are struggling and they're screwed up and they lose faith. They've got the attention span of rhesus monkeys, you know. And every step of the way they struggle and they hit their heads against the wall and they lose faith. And they, they write in, we, what we used to do is write a bad sentence and then exit out, right? You used to exit out. Now you delete it, you know, which is even more fun. Like, really bad. So bad it has to be disappeared, you know. <laughs> Let there be no trace. And, um, and I can promise you that everyone I love is writing that way. So if you're writing incredibly bad first drafts, you're right on track. The main enemy that you're going to face every day is, if you're like me, is going to be the perfectionism. It's going to be wanting to do things well. And, um, and you're not going to be able to, probably. And it's really scary. And a lot of us were raised to do things perfectly. I was 35 years old when I discovered that B-pluses were a good grade. <laughs> I was 35 years old. I was I always got really good grades. I, got, uh, I worked very hard, and I got a lot of A's and A minuses, and I got occasionally B pluses, you know? And I'd bring home my report cards, and, and they, I'm not going to name names again, <laughs> but the slightly older people that lived at the house with my brothers and I when we were young would say the great palace lie, which was, we don't mean this as a criticism. <laughs> we're just curious. If you could get a B plus, how much harder would it have been to get an A minus, right? And I never once looked at him and thought, what a crock, you know, this is a B plus, a good grade, it's excellent, it's almost, it's, you know, I think, yeah, I could do better, I could do better. And the whole culture will conspire to tell you that B pluses are not quite good enough. And if you work a little bit harder, you can get an A minus. Of course, you get an A minus, it's not quite good enough either. If you get an A, it's okay, but then it's going to be used against you next time, right? So what's the point? 
Um, the, the culture does not accept B pluses as a decent grade. Do you think Nancy Kerrigan is at home feeling a childlike sense of wonder and thrill that she got a silver medal? No, she's not. She feels she got ripped off by that weepy little orphan. She's completely enraged. She's enraged. She has never gotten over this. And she will probably never compete again, you know? That's very normal. Normally I like that in a person. Um, not in her case for some reason. Um, but the perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor and it is the enemy of the people. And you must let yourself make messes and mistakes all over the place if you're going to come up with anything that's going to be rich and soulful and nourishing to the rest of us, which is what we hope you will write. Um, when I was a child, I was taught, I know I sound bitter, but I was taught um, that you don't make messes, right? I was told you don't make mistakes and you don't waste paper. Uh, and, and I tell all of my students, I mean, there's one here, you tell you have to waste paper. You should send lots of money to the Sierra Club and then waste paper. Send money to the people in your town that are, put, that are growing trees and then waste paper. Waste as much paper as you want to. Life is short. You are worth a lot of trees. And I think you should send money to conservation groups too and they will replant while you work. Um, and you need to make messes. Tidy piles are, are often an indication that this is about as good as the going's going to get, right? <laughs> messes are fertile ground for all sorts of strange juxtapositions and, and weird thick soups, you know? And if things that look kind of chaotic and messy, you don't have to sit there and, and listen to KFKD play on the radio. You don't have to think, see, look at you. You're a mess. This is what the Unabomber's desk looks like, okay? <laughs> you don't need to think that. You need to think short assignments, shitty first draft. Take a short assignment. You pick up a piece of paper. There might be something interesting written on it. There might be something that you saw or you thought or you dreamt or you overheard that you thought would be interesting or that you could play with. It might be some of that raw, rich, wet clay you pulled out of the river because you were paying attention, because writing was teaching you to pay attention. And you start playing with that clay, start shaping it, start seeing what it, what it might look like in, in all of its wet richness. And um, what's the other thing? Wasting paper, making messes, making mistakes. And the other thing was, oh, you're not allowed to stare off into space, right? And usually from about the age of three or four, if you start staring up to space, you get in trouble. And so you go, you know, you go to school and you're five or you're six and, you know, and then you, you go to school and you're overwhelmed and there's this total mishigas in the classroom and a lot of people doing really well and getting the A minuses, the kindergarten, first grade A minuses, and you're getting the B plus and you're thinking about suicide already, even though you only weigh 40 pounds. <laughs> and, um, and you go to someone's house after school and their house is just a catastrophe, you know, just like a... Like, remember the American family? Remember the louds? You, like go, you go hang out with the louds after school. And you come home, and you're overwhelmed, and your head is swimming with stuff you've seen and stuff you've heard and stuff you've smelled, and you're trying to figure out who you are and what your part in the world is, because that's why we're here is to find out who we are, you know, and how to make sense of it and then how to be of help. So you're sitting there, and so you stare off into the middle distance for a second like a cat, like cats do, and you get busted immediately an adult comes along and says don't you have homework to do you know little 40 pound child little 40 pound b plus child or they say um is your room clean you know and you, and you go no it's not clean and so then you go clean your room so my students are a edgy group of people and they have learned over the years not to stare off into space because they're going to get busted their rooms are never clean and they all got B pluses. Um, most of the writers I know got B pluses. Most of the writers I know are pathologically shy, socially inept people. Again, I won't name names. And they got B pluses, you know. And, uh, and I teach my students, you must learn to stare off into space. This is how it happens. You cannot stare sphincter-like at the page trying to will this stuff into existence, you know. You need to give it some space. You need to take your sticky little fingers off the controls of the spaceship for a minute so it can move and so it can fly and it can lift off and it can go around. You need to let it move and you need to stare off into space. Okay, let's see. Let's not even talk about plot. <laughs> uh, let's not talk about 
I'll tell you one thing about plot. I love Flannery O'Connor, and she wrote a book years ago called Mystery and Manners. Is that right? Does anybody know it? Mystery and Manners. And uh, it's a collection of essays on writing. It's a fantastic, wonderful piece of, of, uh, of a collection. And uh, she said, when she first wrote all, all, her first batch of short stories, she took them to the old woman who lived across the street and gave them to her. And the old woman returned him and said, them stories just show you what people will up and do. <laughs> and that's what plot is. What people will up and do with everything that has to do with reason or good sense saying, don't do this one thing. Best if you don't do this one thing. That's what they're going to do. That's plot. Um, that's all you need to know. Plot grows out of character. So if you focus on who the people are and you get to know them better and you sit down and you write about two people who are getting, better, getting to know each other, something's going to happen, right? If they don't get along at all, put them in an elevator, have the elevator break down, see what happens. Plot is that all the dolls are gathered around the table and now it's tea time. What's going to happen? Who knows who in what sense? Um, what, and uh, focus on character and what happens will be born out of who they are. Let's not talk about tension. I'm too tense. Uh, you need tension, it says here. Uh, you need to ask yourself, what is at stake? You need to find out what each person has to lose, what your main characters have to lose. As soon as you figure out uh, what they have to lose, then you know how to make us very tense about that happening, if it's somebody we care about. Um, what I love is to find myself in characters and to see how they are surviving. And I love to watch people get over things. I love to watch people. Uh, I always tell my students that, that at the climax now, which is, which is like the major event that brings all of these chords you've been playing throughout the book into one major chord, at the climax there usually needs to be a killing of some sort. And it can either be a killing of a person or it could be the killing of of an obstruction. It could be a killing of a deadness in someone's soul. It could be the end of an unwillingness to uh, to wake up and to be fully alive again. But there needs to be something that happens that's really dramatic. And um, But you need to ask, what's at stake here? Like for me, it's very simple. My son, there's nothing else that I could lose that I would not be able to handle. You know, so if you want to write about me, which is probably a good idea, then all you have to do is show that I cannot live without my son, you know, and so then all of a sudden the reader's going to be very anxious. The best book I can think of plot-wise is Middlemarch, which I think is good to read every two years by George Eliot. There's a character in it named George Vincy who loves Mary Garth and wants to marry her, and he has had this tiny little problem with gambling. He's lost a lot of money. Now, I have had every single addictive, obsessive, compulsive behavior except gambling. Although I get extremely overstimulated around change machines and laundromats. And I had to stop going to laundromats because I put in too many dollars, you know, because I get this adrenaline rush when the quarters would come tumbling out. But I do not have this one addiction. I don't know. It's maybe a yet for me. But I do not have it. But I, when I read about George, uh, wait, George Vinci, is that his name? Fred. Fred Vinci. I understand it because I have all of these other things with every single thing in me saying, don't do this one thing. And it's like one of the multiple personalities going, no, wait, I have a good idea. <laughs> this one thing, it'll be different this time. So George, Fred Vinci has been given the money to pay off the father of the woman he loves, Mary Garth. He's going to pay off Mr. Garth. He's been given the exact amount of money and he's headed over there to pay off Mr. Garth after which he can ask for Mary's hand in marriage. And suddenly one of the multiple personalities says, I have a good idea. The good idea is that we will take this money and we'll go to the horse races because we're feeling lucky today because someone gave us the money to pay off the gambling debt with and we will bet we will win and then we'll be able to pay Mr. Vin Mr. Garth back and we'll have a little bit of extra money with which to start the marriage, right? And inside you're going, don't go to the races. Don't go to the races. And you're just frantic. You feel really anxious because you really love this guy and you love the woman he wants to marry and you wish them well. And he's like, don't go to... Well, of course they have to go to the races or there's no book. And of course the horse falls down and breaks its leg and has to be shot. Otherwise the book would be very short and instead it's very long. <laughs> um, so you ask yourself, what is at stake? Is there a love? Is there a child? Is there a 
is there is there a newfound um, belief in oneself? What is there that the person could lose that's going to make us hang on? That's all I know about tension. Um, <laughs> index cards. Um, I always carry index cards with me, and um, of course I don't have one with me now. But I mean I do in my purse, which is over there. And I have index cards in my purse, I have them in my car, I have them by the phone, I have them in the bathroom, I have them everywhere, and I do not leave the house without index cards and a pencil. Because I do something that some of you may be too nervous to do, which is that I think of myself as a writer. And if people ask me what I do, I say it. I say I'm a writer. And then normally if you try it, don't try this at home, because if you say, if people say, what do you do? You say, I'm a writer. They'll say, published? Like that. Or they'll say, have you written anything I might have heard of? And if you name all your books, they won't have heard of any. I just named Sue Grafton's books, and they have heard of them. And, um, and then they think I'm a very fine writer. But um, people will never have heard of you, and they will always hurt your feelings. I'll tell you one quick story, and I will go back to index cards. When Operating Instructions came out, which was the first book I did that really did well, uh, I went to. I was going to do this thing in, in San Francisco at the Hearst, and so I needed a new dress because I have the world's worst clothes. People say I dress like John Goodman, and um, so I went to buy a dress. I had Sam with me, and we went to the store in Marin, the county in which I was born and raised, and have gotten a tremendous amount of publicity. And I went into the store and um, at the mall, and this woman came over to me and she said, "Do you need help?" I said, no, thank you. And she said, are you looking for anything in particular? I said, well, yes, I'm looking for a dress. Right, you're doomed. This is when you hear the theme music from Jaws start to play. I said, I'm buying a dress, right? It's like, well, you're doomed. You should leave now. And she said, is it for anything in particular? And, and at that point, the voice inside of me, the multiple personality who is very clear and wise said, don't tell her. And the attic and the junkie and the little Tory spelling thing inside of me said, it's for a special occasion. And she said, a dinner party. And I said, no. And the voice saying, don't tell this woman. You have the right to remain silent. And I said, I'm doing something on stage. Right? And she said, are you a singer? And I said, no. And I crossed over. I did it. I said, I'm a writer. She said, oh. She said, I, I read everything. <laughs> she said, tell me your name. And I said, no, I'm not going to tell you my name because I'm not stupid. And I said, no, I didn't say that. I said, no, I'm not going to tell you my name. You won't have heard of me. I'm doing this thing on stage. It will be bad for my self-esteem. I don't need that. I'm just a writer. I need a dress. And she said, no, I read everything. Tell me your name. I say, no, I'm not going to tell you my name. She says, Vicky, Vicky, come here. Her assistant comes out. She says, Vicky, don't I read everything? Vicky comes out and goes, she reads everything. Everything ever written, she's written. She's read. She says, please, tell me your name. And I, find, I feel doomed. And I also, my ego, you know, the whole thing. I say, Anne Lamont. And she says, no. <laughs> she's like, guess not. So... Um, and me with my airbags. But um, <laughs> index cards. So I think of myself as a writer when people ask I say I'm a writer. And I don't sit there at the desk having all of my ideas. I sit there at the desk shaping them. I sit there at the desk letting them tell me what they're about. I sit there at the desk letting characters reveal themselves to me when they trust me enough to, that when they trust that I'm being calm enough and unmanipulative enough and when I'm not needing to look good in recovery we call it the frantic effort to appear recovered it's an acronym for fear when I don't need to look good and I am open and I am trusting then ideas and characters come to me and they reveal themselves and sometimes they appear fully formed and sometimes they're shy fitful little flames and if I'm calm and still they grow a little brighter and then I can start to work with them I can start to see them so at the desk is not when I actually come up with a lot of stuff. I come up with my stuff when I walk. I come up with my stuff when I'm doing my ordinary life, when I'm walking my dog, when I'm feeding my kid, when I'm, when I'm waking up from sleep and lying there in the morning, when I'm making, um, you know, when I'm making, I, stuff comes to me. It's like little, it's like goldfish that float into my mind and their ideas are there. 
possibilities for transitions that I haven't been able to come up with or there there are moments where all of a sudden I go oh for God's sake I just got it and it's, it's never when I'm sitting there trying to will it into existence or trying to wrestle it into submission it's about emptying out that's why you know there's a chapter on writer's block in bird by bird because I think block is the wrong word block is so constipated or something it's block you know it's block but I think when you have that it's often about being empty it's about that when you work you're pouring your heart and your soul and your guts into this stuff and, and you empty and you lose a lot of sand a lot of psychic sand from your burlap sack and then you have to go around you have to fill up and you have to talk to people and you have to listen in line and you have to just start paying attention again and open your heart and wait for your characters to say okay now I'm going to tell you what I think she would have really done right then because what you have her do is not what I think she would do I think it would be convenient for you if you could get her to do that because I have some dialogue that would fit in it but that's not true it just you know so if you're ready I can think I can tell you what the truth would be okay so um the thing is that when you are walking along and the idea comes because you're at the salt marsh and you're seeing egrets do things you've never seen the egrets do before and all of a sudden you know what your character would do when she is so petrified pedaling along on her bike that she feels silvery on the inside with fear you need to get it down on paper because it needs you to get it down on paper because it can't write and it can't keep telling you over and over again what it meant to say it can say it for you and it needs you to honor it it needs you to be paying attention and you're not going to get it right if you wait till when you get home you know and one of the voices that you're going to hear on kfkd and that you're going to have to fight your whole life is the voice that said um that when you couldn't remember things exactly well might not have been very important you know, I'm going to important you ever met You know, it's like, well, thank you for sharing that. And that's very spiritual. And um, so you need to have paper. You need to have a pencil. You need to get it down on paper. Um, I use index cards because I can fold them lengthwise and stick them in my back pocket and I don't feel bulky, you know. And if I carry a little notepad around, I always feel bulky. They stick out and you one side of your butt than the other and and you know we all have enough problems as it is at least I do and uh, so I carry an index card now some of my angrier students say then what do you do with your index cards and I always say I'm going to lower your grade because for even asking me that although they're not graded so they don't tend to take me seriously um, what I do is I have them you know what I do is that I got them and I took them and what I, I do is that I put them down on paper and I took these ideas and images and lines of dialogue and snippets of meaning and, and, and brief moments of illumination seriously. And I put them down on paper. And my desk is nuts. I look like a person who's slightly nuts. I'm not very organized. I have my index cards. You know, and I think it's sort of like the Bouvier ants with all their cats. You know, I have one cat and hundreds of index cards. And I have them. I, got, I heard my ideas and I took the time to get it right. And I think God likes it when you bother at that level to just get it exactly right. I think God says, Oi, they, finally, you know? And then you start getting help in other ways with your work. I, uh, I sometimes put a group of index cards together if they have to do with specific solutions to what I'm working on at that time. There are sometimes where I have a project that I'm thinking ahead to and, I, uh, and, I, and it comes to me and it's not convenient for it to come to me right now because what I want is an immediate solution to the problem of how to get from here to there and it's not an answer to that and it's something else and I still get it done and I tape it to the wall. I have a clothesline running the length of my office which is actually a garage if you look closely and it goes from one end of the wall to the other and I have clothespins and I clip index cards to it that are really important, that give me a little bit of light, that give me a little bit of direction, that maybe show me one foot in front of me with the headlights on. And I... Please turn the tape over now and the speaker will continue. Thank you very much. Go through and I'll throw a bunch of them out. It'll turn out I use them. It'll turn out that I didn't need them. It'll turn out that it, they, were the, they were the lily pad before the one that I really needed to land on that I wouldn't have gotten to without that one before it. Uh, some of these are just wonderful lines, <clears throat> and I would have been sorry to lose them. I heard uh, my very favorite one was uh, I was out at working at a restaurant when I was 
30 or something. And uh, you, if you want to be a writer, you're probably going to work at restaurants. You know, you have to get used to that. It's not that bad. And keeps you a little thin because you're always on your feet. And of course, you're always in a bad mood. But um, anyway, I, I was working at the cash register, and this teenager came up to me. And she had her bill, her check, and she said, I'm going to have to pay you like in total dimes. <laughs> and I thought that was so beautiful. She did, and she said, I'm going to have to pay you like in total dimes. And I said, wait a minute. And I took out my index card and I wrote it down. Because if I had gotten home, if this thing in me had said, it's more important that you just take her money, I would have heard it later as, I have to pay you totally in dimes. Which is A, not that interesting, just like, you know, vernacular. But I'm going to have to pay you like, in total dimes, is rhythm and blues, you know? It's like music. Um, and if you carry index cards around, it sort of, to me, it signals my subconscious that I am receiving. And it can send some stuff in because I'm paying attention. And I am looking at things with a little bit of a sense of wonder instead of just, you know, my mind just reeling and spinning with problems and, and, uh, and, and you know, purported solutions to those problems. Instead, it's like I am receiving. It's like now open. It's like Sparky's, you know, it's like when Lucy's got the, the doctor is in, you know, with a booth. It's like the doctor's in, the writer's in. I'm here. Hit me with your best shot. What? And then I write it down. Um, oh, I have like seven hours of stuff to tell you, but I, so I'm going to, we'll skip all the stupid stuff like character, <laughs> theme. Oh, I'll tell you a great theme story. Um, Sam and I, my boy, he's almost seven, were watching King Kong the other day. The, the remake with Jessica Lange. My little boy is very religious. He's always gone to Christian schools, and he's very tender-hearted. He's also kind of a ninja death warrior, but he's also very, very sweet. He's a very vulnerable, sensitive, funny little kid. And he turned to me two-thirds of the way through, and he said, um, she, she loves him now. She loves the monkey now because she can see that he's lonely. And I said, oh, Sam, that is so exactly right. That is called a theme. That's an idea. That's what the whole movie is about. It's like Beauty and the Beast, that she can see his yearning, and so she's able to, not, to get past the fear. She can see his heart, and so she's able to get past the frightening aspects of his package. And I said, see, that's what my students and I talk about. That's called a theme. It's like the whole big idea that the piece is about and what happens is the plot but what it's about is the theme it's the idea and we talked about oh he's kind of patronizing oh yeah mom really thanks you know it's for, you know but um but no he's really listening and it was really sweet so a couple days later it was the end of the school year and he was having a slumber party so we were talking about the video that he was going to rent for the for the when the kids came over and um I said, well, I'll, you know, I named him. He said, no, no. I said, I think I'd like them to see King Kong. And I said, fine, it's great. We'll take it out again. He said, because it's about such a great theme. <laughs> and I said, it really is. It's about the most important theme of all, isn't it? About who we are on the inside and about our heart and our hope and our longing and our need, our loneliness. And yeah, I said, it's about such a great idea. And I said, well, if you were telling your friends about it, how would you express that idea? And he thought, he got this look, and he said, I'd say it's about a really huge gorilla. <laughs> so that's theme. Okay, we've discovered, we've discussed theme, and we discussed character. <laughs> Two quick lines of dialogue uh, that I think are good that don't, are, don't need to be discussed at length. One is that John Gardner, who has written wonderful books about writing, the late, great John Gardner, has a line in The Art of Fiction where he said that when you're writing, you're inviting the reader to step into this world that you, you, you're, write, you're inviting the reader to step into a dream that you, the writer, have created, and the dream must be vivid and continuous. And it's such a wonderful line. Because in your dream, you know, it fl your dream flows. You know, you're, you're sitting and you're, you're, think you're noticing that you wear a toupee and you've never noticed, but in the dream you just go, that's so weird, I wear a toupee. Okay, and now I'm going to have a glass of pink lemonade and that's okay too. Now I'm in Paris and I'm shooting drugs with Rosalind Carter. And that's all sort of interesting. 
Not that I remember shooting drugs or having met Rosalind Carter, but, oh, and she's now got the toupee, and she's having pink lemonade, and in the dream, you don't go, now, wait a minute. In the dream, there's that suspension, and you flow, and you move with it, because you're on this other level. You're very deep into some subconscious sort of symbolic reality. And you can do anything you can get away with in fiction as long as the reader doesn't go, now wait a minute, you know. You do not want the reader to stop and try to figure things out. And the dream must be vivid and continuous. And then Shirley Jackson, who's written a piece that I don't have with me called, uh, I think it's called Letter to a Young Writer or something like that. She says a confused reader is an antagonistic reader. And that's very important. And when I was younger, I used to not mind working. I used to be glad if, if somebody, I used to read a lot more European stuff than I do now, for instance. And then I would always, I'm very impressionable. Like last night, after having been with two Southern women whose names I will not name, I had a slight accent until I went to sleep and I woke up and I had been restored to Yankeehood. But um, I'm very impressionable. I would read these European writers and I would write in this kind of ethereal, you know, postmodern European way, and it would drive everyone crazy, and they'd say, Annie, this doesn't work, it's direct, and I'd go back to trying to talk in my own voice. Because you cannot tell the truth in someone else's voice. That's part of the awful reality, is that you've got to discover who you are, and you have to embrace that, because you cannot tell the truth in other people's voices. Whenever Isabella Allende comes out with a new book, all of my students get heavily into magical realism. Whenever Anne Beattie has a book come out, they all write about surfaces, they write about silver tea trays, and they write about window panes. And then it passes, and they go back to their own funky, you know, lurching along voices, which is how they are able to tell their version of things. But, um, 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 oh God, what was I talking about? Voices, uh, impressionists. Sue, what was I talking about? Do you have any idea? Okay, well, let's move on. Let's not bog down here. Um, Carrie, do you know what I was talking about? A confused reader. <laughs> Exhibit A is an antagonistic reader. Um, Mel Brooks had a wonderful line on the back of the 2,000-year-old man where he had the old shrink, the old Jewish shrink, saying, listen to your broccoli and your broccoli will tell you how to eat it. And that is very, very important advice for a writer. So much so that students over the year have gotten me broccoli pins because I used to say it so much. I say it less now. But um, what that means is that there's this inner, there's this voice inside of you that is really trustworthy. And there are going to be a lot of moments when you're going to come to a brick wall in your writing and you're not going to go know whether to go left or to go right. And one of the things that you may be doing as you grow older is learning to trust your insides again and learning to believe that what you see is uh, valid and it's, uh, it's worth communicating and it's trustworthy. And a lot of us when we were children were seeing a lot of stuff that we were not allowed to be seeing. And so when we saw it, our parents said, oh no, that is not in fact what is going on. What is in fact going on is this. Your mother's not in the bathroom crying. Your mother has allergies, all right? Very allergic, the poor dear. And so you get used to not telling the truth about anything because if you say what the truth is, you get sent to your room and you don't eat again till the next major holiday. So part of being a writer is saying, this is what I see and I believe that it is true. And to the best of my ability, this is, I'm going to capture on paper what, in fact, I believe I saw. And that has to do with intuition. And that has to do with a militant form of self-acceptance and saying, I believe you. It's about believing the kids. You know, it's about believing. The kids tell you something, say, okay, I believe you, you know, until proven otherwise. Um, there's a whole lot more I want to tell you, and I also want to um, be able to uh, answer some of your questions. And I want to read you the last couple pages of Bird by Bird, and I want to tell you one Mike Nichols story, um, which was that I remember years ago in a newspaper interview, he was talking about having gone to see um, Waiting for Godot in, on Broadway, when it was on Broadway a few years ago. And he said, you sit there, and it's so profound, and it's so painful. It's really just excruciating, like all of Beckett is, and it's so beautiful. But he said he'd sit there and he'd get more and more depressed as the play went on. And he'd leave the theater and he'd really be demoralized. You know, I mean, redemption in Beckett is that at the end of Godot, there's one leaf on the tree, right? That was a tree brand, uh, leafless before. And he would leave and he'd start walking to his car. And he'd notice that he started to feel better and better. And by the time he'd walked half a mile, or however far he got to walk, he started to feel really good, and he realized that it was because someone had told the truth. 
And the truth, in the end, is all we have to give to one another. And, I, and so I always remember that, that um, it just matters so much. It just matters so much that we tell the truth to the best of our ability and that we practice and that we find people that are real safe with whom we can practice telling the truth. I want to read you three pages of Bird by Bird, and then if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. There are moments when I'm writing when I think that if other people knew how I felt right now, they'd burn me at the stake for feeling so good, so full, so much intense pleasure. I pay through the nose for these moments, of course, with lots of torture and self-loathing and tedium, because, God, it can be dull, you know? It can be as dull as watching the aspic set. And you know what? We tough it out and we keep our butts on the chair. And that is why some of us are published many times over and some of you are having a hard time. It's because it's tedious sometimes and you just have to get yourself to sit there somehow. And if you sit there long enough, something will happen. That's the one thing I can promise you. If you sit there long enough, something will happen. Anyway, self-loathing and tedium. But when I am done for the day, I have something to show for it. When the ancient uh, Egyptians finished building the pyramids, they had built the pyramids. Perhaps they are good role models. They thought they were working for God, so they worked with a sense of concentration and religious awe. Also, my friend Carpenter tells me they drank all day and took time off every few hours to oil each other. I, I believe that all my other writer friends do this too, but they won't let me in on it. <laughs> The society to which we belong seems to be dying or is already dead. I don't mean to sound dramatic, but clearly the dark side is rising. Things could not have been more odd or frightening in the Middle Ages, but the tradition of artists will continue no matter what form the society takes. And this is another good reason to write. People need us to mirror for them and for each other without distortion, not to look around and say, look at yourselves, you idiots, but to say, this is who we are. In this dark and wounded society, writing can give you the pleasures of the woodpecker, of hollowing out a hole in a tree where you can build your nest and say, this is my niche, this is where I belong now, this is where I live. And the niche may be small and dark, but at last you will finally know what you were doing. After 30 years of floundering around and screwing up, you will finally know. And when you get serious, you will, you will be dealing with the one thing you've always been avoiding all along your wounds. This is very painful. It stops a lot of people early on who didn't get into this for the pain. They got into it for the money and the fame. So they either quit or they resort to a type of writing that is sort of like candy making. Don't underestimate this gift of finding a place in the writing world. If you really work at describing creatively on paper the truth as you understand it, as you have experienced it with the people or material who are inside of you, who are asking that you help them get written, you will come to a secret feeling of honor. Being a writer is part of a noble tradition, as is being a musician, the last egalitarian and open associations. No matter what happens in terms of fame and fortune, dedication to writing is a marching step forward from where you were before, when you didn't care about reaching out to the world, when you weren't hoping to contribute, when you were just standing there doing some job into which you had fallen. Even if only the people in your writing group read your memoirs or stories or novels, even if you only wrote your story so that one day your children will know what life was like when you were a child and you knew the name of every dog in town, still to have written your version is an honorable thing to have done. Against all odds, you have put it down on paper so that it won't be lost. And who knows? Maybe what you've written will help others the solution. You don't even have to know how or in what way. But if you are writing the clearest, truest words you can find and doing the best you can to help and un to understand and communicate, this will shine on paper like its own little lighthouse. Lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. You simply keep putting down one damn word after the other as you hear them as they come to you. You can either set brick as a laborer or as an artist. You can make the work a chore or you can have a good time. You can do it the way you used to clear the dinner dishes when you were 13. Or you can do it as a Japanese person would perform a tea ceremony with a level of concentration and care in which you can lose yourself and so in which you can find yourself. Sometimes no matter how screwed up things seem, I feel like we're all at a wedding. 
But you can't just come out and say, we're at a wedding, have some cake. You need to create a world into which we can enter, a world where we can see this. There was an old desert dog in a comic strip yesterday, it was actually in Peanuts, sitting with his back against a cactus, writing a letter to his brother that said, at night the sun goes down and the stars come out, and then in the morning the sun comes up again. It's so exciting to live in the desert. <laughs> and that's the wedding, right? To participate requires self-discipline and trust and courage because this business of becoming conscious, of becoming a writer, is ultimately about asking yourself, how alive am I willing to be? The best thing about being an artist instead of a madman or someone who writes letters to the editor is that you get to engage in satisfying work. Even if you never publish a word, you have something important to pour yourself into. Your parents and grandparents will be shouting, don't do it, don't sit down, don't sit down. And you'll have to do what you did as a kid, shut them out and get on with finding out about life. Then I look into my students' faces and they look solemnly back at me. So why does our writing matter again, they ask? Because of the spirit, I say, because of the heart. Writing and reading decrease our sense of isolation. They deepen and widen and expand our sense of life. They feed the soul. When writers make us shake our heads with the exactness of their prose and their truths, and even make us laugh about ourselves or life, our buoyancy is restored. We're given a shot at dancing with, or at least clapping along with, the absurdity of life instead of being squashed by it over and over again. It's like seeing on a boat during a terrible storm at sea. You can't stop the raging storm, but singing can change the hearts and spirits of the people who are together on that ship, as we are. I wonder if anyone has any questions at all about, say, my personal life. Yes. Did you hear that question? Uh, yeah, well, yes. I'm sorry, I can repeat your question. When the first time she read my book, she thought I was more depressed than her. The second time, she thought she was more depressed than me. And now she she thought that um, that I had just started writing at 23 and that everything had gone fairly well. And now she has heard that I waited tables and wants to talk about other stupid jobs that I had. But I always had stupid jobs. I have always um, worked to make a living so that I could write. And I was raised by a writer. My father was a writer. And I was raised believing that it was like a privilege to be one of the culture's artists, you know? And it was, it's like so cockamamie now because it's become a world where people are getting such huge advances and it's becoming a celebrity realm. But when I was a kid, to get to be a writer was its own reward. It was a miracle. It was like the biggest scam you could think of that you got in a privilege and an honor to be one of the storytellers for the culture. And um, so I, I, my father was a really great coach for me and he always said you sit down and you, you do your scales every day and no matter what happens you get some work done. You know, and I always tell my students 300 words a day. I mean I plead, I say 300 words a day. It's one manuscript page. Do 300 words a day, taking time out from major holidays, PMS, you've got 200 pages written by the end of the year, right? 250 pages, you've got a novel. So um, I, I taught tennis for a long time. I cleaned houses for a very long, bitter time. And I have waited tables forever. And I, had, and I wrote freelance, I did a lot of freelance pieces. And also, you know what, I was broke the entire time. And I was glad to be broke because I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, you know. And I had four books published and I was still broke. And I still wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And I was glad to be broke as long as I just got to keep writing, you know. And then I wrote Operating Instructions, which was not expected to be much of anything. And it was great, you know. And I also got this gig at Mademoiselle. I mean, as my editor at California said, said, gee, you know, I look at you and I think, not much of a madam, but what a wazelle, you know. <laughs> and I got, to I got to write the book review column at Mademoiselle, and I got, and all of a sudden I had a, the really first steady income of my life. So what you do is you make the commitment to writing, and you, you know, you take the action of doing the work every day, and of keeping the faith, and, and uh, you do your work. It's going to be like, you know, 
my students don't come to class wanting to write really poorly. You know, they come to class wanting to get to be better and better, and they want it, they hope to make a living at it because there's something inside their souls that just wants to be alive and that wants to be fully human and wants to be part of the solution and wants to bring news to their frontier, you know, and say it's okay and there's still civilization out there. And, and uh, it's like... Um, you have to let yourself be bad and you have to let yourself be broke and you have to let yourself be all the things that don't look very successful because you just want it so badly that you just stick it out and people roll their eyes or they think you're a dilettante or they think you're wasting time. You say, hey, that's fine. None of my business. Thank you for sharing. Very thoughtful. Um, and you get your work done. And it's like when people want to play piano, they don't hope to play the farmer in the dell very badly. They don't hope to butcher the farmer in the dell but they have to be willing to, and they learn to play the farmer and the dell really poorly, and then maybe three or four months later of practicing and practicing and practicing, they can just totally butcher their very favorite Beatles song, you know? And then they master that, and after a year, maybe they can play a really, really simple Bach etude or something, and they have to play it really poorly. So, I mean, I've done everything, and I've been really broke, and it was fine. This is better, yes. <laughs> the airbags, you know. I like the airbags. I'm just here to tell you that this is the microphone, and there's a microphone over there. And if you have questions, you can line up at the microphone, and we'll do this for another few minutes. But Anne Lamont has a lot of books to sign out there, and we all want her to have that opportunity as well. Yes. That's fine. You can shout. Uh huh. How much revisions do I do on operating structures? Tons, tons. Yeah, it's not at all a verbatim journal. I, um, a lot of times I just wrote down a really quick note to myself about what had happened that day, and I wrote down as many details as I could, you know, and I believe in the details, and I, I believe God is in the details, and the stuff is all in the details. I scribbled down details, and I constructed it later. Then I'd also call my brother and my friend Pammy and I'd say, tell me what else you remember about the baptism. Tell me what else you remember about the first DPT. So it's not at all a verbatim journal. How much did you cut it? How much did I cut it? Uh, I didn't cut it as much as I uh, added to it. Yeah, I don't, um, I mean, I cut it a little bit. I, sh I shaved, you know, I, I write long, and, like I talk too much and I write big and I have to, it's always like, the, the illustrious way to think of it is with Michelangelo and the Statue of David where things that tend to be big and blocky when I first captured them and I have to just keep shaving off the marble and shaving it down and shaving it down until the statue reveals itself. But for the most part, um, I didn't have to cut that much. I've cut a tremendous amount of the novel that I'm working on. And it all has to do with low self-esteem and with thinking that I haven't explained it clearly enough or that I should be funnier than I'm actually feeling or that I should take this intense emotional stuff and try to make it funny so that people won't think that I'm depressed, God forbid. And, um, and so um, I mostly cut, I end up cutting half of what I've written, but not with operating instructions. And I was writing it with a great deadline, which was when my friend was dying and I was trying to get the book written because it was a love letter to her. It's a sequel to Rosie. It's Rosie four years later. This concludes the taping of this section. Uh, people are asking two more questions, but we're unable to pick them up because they're not using the microphone. Thank you very much.